So Romans 11, I, I think last week we stopped pretty much at verse 6. And so we're going to start. I'm not going to read the whole passage. We'll work sort of portion by portion through. But to begin with, I want to read verse 7 through about verse 10. Uh, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble to fall, did they? May it never be. But, their transgre- but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand what it meant in its original setting. Father, that you would help us to see how this passage applies to our lives this day. Father, I ask that you'd speak to us, encourage us. Lord, may we come to know you uh, all the more closely. And it's in Christ's good name that we pray. Amen. So to sort of back up, I'm going to ask if you guys could go to the next slide there of the map. Um, The author of this letter is the Apostle Paul. He found himself in Corinth, which is right under Achaia. It's modern day Greece. He found himself there uh, with a church that he'd planted, he'd started. Uh, he is writing this letter to, to Rome in Italy, the boots that we all see there. In Rome, there were a group of believers who were not established through any sort of uh, apostolic teaching. Uh, uh, an apostle didn't go there and start the church. What had happened following uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, a, a bunch of people were in Israel, were in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, And when Passover happened, or excuse me, Pentecost, Pentecost happens, the church is formed, there's a bunch of people there, the the group of 120 believers who are there in Jerusalem suddenly have the ability to speak in languages that they didn't know to proclaim the good news of Christ in the gospel. And so all of these people who are from around the world in Jerusalem, they're suddenly hearing the gospel in their native tongue, their mother language. They, a number of them, accept Christ as their savior, and they eventually go back to their place of residence. And so this uh, group of people happen to be the Romans. They find themselves back in Rome. You now have a bunch of Jewish people who now follow after Christ as the Messiah. They began to grow and to flourish. Both Jews and Gentiles were uh, trusting in Christ as savior in Rome. Uh, During this time, as the church is growing, very Jewish uh, heavy or in the majority, uh, the Jewish people began to reach out to their fellow Jews uh, to share the good news of Christ. 
This brought tension. And so during this time of tension, Claudius, who was the ruler, he was getting upset with the outbreaks that peace was sort of being disturbed. And so he expelled all Jews from Rome during this time. And so while he, the Jews are expelled, the Gentile believers, they're growing in number. The church is thriving. Uh, they're believing, uh, they're starting to think, well, the Jews are kicked out. We're thriving. We think that maybe God is done with his promises to Israel and has ex- is exchanged us for Israel, that we're the new Israel. And so the Gentiles continue to grow. Eventually, Claudius is poisoned. Nero comes to power. When Nero comes to power, the, the Jews are allowed back in, except when they return this time, they're now in the minority. They're in the smaller group. The Gentiles are there. There's great tension. And so Paul, who has never met this group of believers, wants to establish a relationship with them. He wants to lay out doctrine, his teaching to them. Ultimately, he wants to establish a relationship with them so that he can get a new headquarters for the church established out of Rome. Uh, It's been said that that all roads lead to Rome during that time. And so Paul thought, well, if all roads lead to Rome, if I get to Rome, all the roads in Rome lead to the whole world. Ultimately, he wanted to get to Spain, which was considered the outermost part of the world where the gospel hadn't been preached yet. He thought in writing this letter, he could establish a relationship. They could start collecting funds. And then when he gets to Rome, they would be able to send him on out to Spain. And so he lays out his letter. The first few verses in chapter one, he introduces himself. He says how he's heard great things about him, how he longs to see them, how he longs to be mutually encouraged with them. Uh, He then lays out the gospel. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. He then says it also is a revelation of God's wrath. And from Romans chapter 1, verse 17 through Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he, he basically shows the picture that all humanity has sinned and has fallen short of God's glory. Whether you're a religious person, you're a non-religious person, whether you're a moralist without religion, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He paints a very bleak picture. And then he introduces faith. In chapter 4, Abraham comes uh, into the story. and He begins sharing about Abraham, the the grandfather of the Jewish uh, patriarchs. And he shows that Abraham wasn't saved by works or religion. He was saved through faith that God made him a promise. He believed and then he was declared righteous. God justified him through his faith. Moving into chapter five of Romans, it's the the picture of the Christian or the person who's come to faith in Christ. They've been declared justified before God and they live out their lives no longer at war with God. We have peace with God. It's this beautiful picture of what the Christian life is. As we enter into chapter 6 and chapter 7, Paul wants to address those who have trusted in the Messiah. After we come to faith, there's a propensity to slip back into our old nature. Chapter 6 would be the Gentile believers' propensity to slip back in uh, to license, that they could live however they want. If uh, He asked the question, well, uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So if God's great, if God is magnified, if the more of a sinner that we are, doesn't that make God look better? 
And so why don't I just continue in sin? Because ultimately I'm doing a God a favor. Paul says, may it never be. Don't, you don't have license to sin. Then as we get into chapter 7, the first few verses there, the Jewish believer, their propensity would be to slip back into religion and to follow the law and to, to follow into a system of works trying to please God with how they live their lives according to rules that they'd made. As Paul shares about this, he gets very personal with us. As a Jewish man, this is something that he struggled with. And so he tells about his struggle of trying to, to trust in the law to make him his relationship with God right. And he says, the things that I, I, I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And, and it, this sin is within me. Leading into chapter 8, for both groups, the key to live out the Christian life is found in the spirit. And chapter 8 was this beautiful chapter Uh, We really could go over chapter 8 over and over and over again. Where chapter 8 ended, if we'll turn back there with me, the last few verses of chapter 8. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. It's It's beautiful. It's sort of the crescendo of the first eight chapters of Romans. And as he gets there, I believe that he's going to get to the issue at hand. The tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. He, he sees that there's a, 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 a friction between these two groups that was getting so severe that he could ultimately see two churches forming. That there would be a, a Jewish brand of Christianity and a Gentile brand of Christianity And he knew that's not what God wanted, that there's supposed to be unity between these two groups. And so in chapters 9 through 11, there are very different tone through all of Romans. They're difficult. There's rough edges. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I understand every single phrase that Paul writes here. Then when we get to chapter 12, which we're getting very close to, it gets very practical again and will be in smooth, easy waters for the most part. It won't be in our understanding. It will be in the application of the truths that he writes of. But as he gets to chapter 9, he begins with sharing his heart for Israel. Listen to this in verse 1 of chapter 9. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, who belongs the adoption as sons and the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So he has this great passion. He says, I wish I I would be willing to give up my salvation, that I would go to hell if it meant that my fellow brethren, the Israelites, would bow their knee and accept Christ as Savior. I would do that. But that wasn't the case. And they hadn't bowed. In large part, Israel had rejected the Messiah. And so the issue that Paul's getting at here is, If the Gentiles are saying that God has replaced Israel with the Gentiles, 
There's a major problem at hand. And that problem is, has God turned back on his word? Because he made these covenants with Israel. And in verse 6, this is the issue. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who descended from Israel. And so he's going to begin making the case, showing how God worked with Israel in the history. That God hasn't failed on his promises to Israel. That God's not done with Israel. He starts out in chapter 9 showing how God has selected Israel. I don't think salvation is in mind here. I think the issue at mind is that God has chosen Israel as a tool to be used by him to be a light into the world, to bring reconciliation to the world. But they rejected him and his plan. But he chose them. He goes on to say at the end of chapter 9, as, as we sort of kick against God's plan, that doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right. And he pretty much ends with the, the illustration of God is the potter, you are the clay. He has the freedom to do or to say or to act out however he wants. We're the created. And as he goes from there into chapter 10, Paul again with his heart says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And so here's the big issue. The big issue is that God is righteous. We can't attain his righteousness. But Israel and their zeal, their passion for God, without knowledge, thought that they could create religion and a system of doing certain things. And they could carry out how they interpreted the scriptures in a way that would please God so that they would attain their own righteousness. And Paul says it can't be that way. God is sovereign the way he says that you come to him is his prerogative. And to the stubborn person who refuses to bow and refuses to do things his way, there's going to be consequences. And all of chapter 10 deals with God's plan that a person needs to come to Christ, including Israel. And for the first two chapters, or I should say chapters 9 and 10 of this section, if you took these passages in isolation, it would be very easy to think that Paul was making the case that indeed God has replaced Israel with the church. But then we come to chapter 11 and he says, I say, then God has not rejected his people as he may it never be. He he then shows himself as a as an example. He says, I am a, I'm an Israelite, a tribe of Benjamin. If God was done with Israel, I wouldn't be here a saved man reaching out. He brings himself to the table. Then he shows the discouragement that the Jewish person would have had during his time. He he quotes to them from Elijah. Last week, we looked at the story here. Elijah, he he defeats his own nation who had wandered from God, found himself all alone or so he thought he he runs from the queen of Israel. He ends up down in down south in the desert by the Dead Sea after defeating all of these false prophets at Mount Carmel. And he basically, I said he wrote the first country song last week. Woe is me. I'm all alone. Take my life. I just want to die. And an angel appeared to him and said, hey, why don't you eat some food and take a nap? You'll feel better. (laughs) And so he took a nap. He felt better. And then the angel 
the pre-incarnate Christ shows up to him and says, you know what? You think you're all alone, but you're not. See, I have, uh, what was it? 3,000 believers, if my memory serves right. There's, there's a remnant that I've reserved. You're not alone. And Paul trying to encourage his fellow Jewish believers in the Messiah, saying, listen, don't be discouraged. God's not done. And we looked at the history of Israel. This is a people that has had the world after them. And yet they survive. And so we looked at this remnant, this sense of encouraging. And in verse 7 of chapter 11, where we are entering in today, he said, what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not, uh, not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. What, what they were seeking was righteousness, but they were going about righteousness the wrong way. They were seeking righteousness through their own system of works, their own uh, religion, their own interpretation. But what God wanted is for them to walk by faith. And those of Israel who walked by faith, God carried out his promises to the rest that hardened themselves. God said, you know what? I'll harden your hearts as well. Fast forwarding then, we get to verse 11. And he says, I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? Then may it never be. So the question here is, did, were they walking along? Were they going? And did they trip so hard that they'll never recover? And he says, may it never be. They'll be able to recover from this stumbling as well. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And this beautiful picture of they've rejected the Messiah, whom they taught about every week. Uh, last week, I quoted from Acts 13. And Paul, as he speaks to his fellow countrymen, he says, the leaders in Jerusalem, they missed it. Every week they taught in the Sabbath about the Messiah who was coming. And yet when he came, they rejected him. In fact, they crucified him on the cross to fulfill God's plan. But he said in this, as Gentiles come to faith, that there would be jealousy sparked up from within them. There was a story told of a, of a couple that went to a restaurant Anna says, I need to be careful telling this story because it sounds really bad. There was a poor couple. They go to this restaurant. All they could afford was a grilled cheese sandwich to split between themselves. And so they order their sandwich. They get their sandwich. And then this very wealthy Jewish family comes into the restaurant. The wealthy family says, you know what? Uh, I don't know. Pretend it's like Ruth Chris. I've never eaten there. But they order like $300 steaks. These fat, juicy, beautiful steaks. All of these steaks come to the table. And the Jewish family says, you know, what? we don't feel like this anymore. So they basically, they pay for their meal and they walk out. And there this couple is with their grilled cheese sandwich looking at the owner of the restaurant. Hey, you mind? Waste not, want not, right? So they go over there and they start eating and enjoying the steak. Meanwhile, the restaurant closes as they're enjoying their steaks the family's like, what were we thinking? We just spent hundreds of dollars on those steaks. We need to go back. They get back to find a closed restaurant. And through the windows, they see this poor family going to town on their steaks. And that is jealousy. And this is the picture that Paul has taken. Our Messiah came from us. We rejected him. And yet the Gentiles, when they believe and then they see God working in the lives of these people who had rejected God, who had false idols for all of their history. 
suddenly are enjoying the peace with God and the freedom that it'll it'll pr- produce this jealousy and rage within the Jewish people. And Paul says this is a great thing. He goes on to say, verse 12, now if their transgression, that's rejecting Christ, is riches for the world, it's riches for the world because God now is, the Gentiles are now coming in rapidly to this family of faith. And their failure is riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles and as much then as I am an apostle of the gent of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen and save some of them. He's saying, you know what? I'm a Jew. And if you look at Paul's credentials and pedigree of Jews, he was one of the most elite. He studied under Gamaliel. He likely was going to be the head leader of the the Sanhedrin. And yet God chose him to reach out to Gentiles. But his heart was still very much for his fellow countrymen. And he says, listen, if I bring in all of these Gentiles and it produces this rage of jealousy to my fellow countrymen, so much so that they finally bow their knee and accept Christ as their ministry, praise be to God. It's a wonderful thing. And he says, verse 15, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And I think as we get to this point, we need a, I need to back up and say a couple things. Or, or, or the next section can get very confusing. We can get distracted or we, we can interpret things wrongly if we miss how some words are being used. Throughout this section, it's very easy to, to personalize the, the you. The English were missing second person plural. The Texans got it right. Y'all. Y'all is a good word, but we don't use it. We just have you. And you can mean you or you can mean y'all. But if we just say you in the English, we don't really know if he's talking about y'all or you. In this section, he's talking about y'all. Us collectively as the Gentile church. When he speaks of Israel, he's not speaking of a specific Jewish person. He's speaking of y'all, all of them, all of the Jews. And so we have to sort of keep this understanding that he's talking about the group. And as we look at the group, it'll, under, it'll help us understand what's saying here. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll bring this up again later. But the first thing is this reconciliation. He says in verse 15, for their rejection, Israel's rejection, he's already established that not all Israel has rejected. He, he said that most of Israel has rejected. There's a remnant. So, so the, their rejection, he's now speaking of all of Israel in a general sense, understanding that there were some that didn't reject. But the bigger picture is that Israel rejected. And their, reject, their rejection resulted in reconciliation. Now, if we went back to chapter 5, verse 11, as he's speaking to the church, this word reconciliation comes up. It's, it's sort of the theme of chapter 5. And in verse 11, it says, and not only this, but we exult, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It's beautiful. 
The message has come. Israel rejected. Now the Gentiles have this opportunity to believe. But even more so, if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, I believe. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we see this great passage. Which begins in uh, verse 17. We'll start there because 17 is such a great verse. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us. In the next few verses, we're going to see this word reconciled a bunch of times. I think it's like five or six times. All of these things are from God who God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the church. The ministry of reconciliation. So he reconciled us to him. And as we've been reconciled to him, he said, now you have the job of reconciling the world to me. I don't know what he was thinking. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be. Wait, I was quoting incorrectly. He knew he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So here we see this idea of reconciliation, that we've been reconciled through Christ and that we as a church collectively have been given this responsibility to bring the good news to the world. In this sense, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see how the church, the Gentile church or the church at large is simply a tool in God's hands. He said, "Okay, I want to use you guys as a tool to bring the good news to the world. When we go back to Romans chapter 11, the reason I'm bringing this up sort of in this section, I don't believe this section is about salvation. What this section is about is that God has chosen Israel to be his tool, but his tool has rejected him. So he's taken this tool and he's put it in the shelf and he's picked up a new tool And he said, Israel, you were supposed to be my light to the world. You were supposed to bring reconciliation to the world, but you've rejected me. So now the church is coming in and they're going to be the agent of reconciliation for me. And this is going to bring about great jealousy from Israel because they want to be the tool that is being used. And if it causes them to repent and to come into relationship with God, that's a great thing. Uh, carrying on verse 15, he says, um, for if the rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. There's a book. I I think it's in the church library. It's a great book. It happened a few years ago. A horrible story. Great book. Uh, It's called mistaken identity. And it was about a, a busload of girls. They were collegiate athletes. Um, in texas going somewhere and their van was in a terrible accident most of the girls were killed two of the girls in the process one died one lived their identities were mistaken and so 
the girl who survived, it, it, she was severely injured. She couldn't communicate. The two girls looked a lot, a, a lot alike. The family didn't recognize the girl as not being their own daughter. And so I don't know the timing, if it was six months or eight months or what it was. But the one family who thought they'd lost their daughter, they had the funeral, they had all the services. They had gone through like eight months of mourning the loss of their daughter. Now, the other family, they had their daughter that was taken from them, having to learn how to speak again, learning how to walk again, learning how to eat again, going through this whole process. And about nine months into it, this girl begins communicating because she knew for months, you're not my family, you're not my family, you're not my family. Finally, they figure out what she's communicating and they figure out who she belongs to. And so this book describes the journey of these two families who are both Christian. Just an amazing story. But the family who had lost their daughter suddenly to find out that she's alive again and that she's doing well was overwhelming. But then the family who had been carrying her for eight months, they write like, I feel they feel that God had been preparing them to help this family out to learn how to adapt to her, her new needs. And the other family who thought that they'd lost their daughter suddenly came alongside of this family to help them in their mourning. But the part of the story of this family who had lost their daughter suddenly to get her back, the joy was so happy there, way more so than you could possibly imagine. Or even if there was the accident to find out she's alive, that they buried her suddenly eight months later to find out she was alive. We sang a song, I don't even remember what song it was, but it talks about Ezekiel and the, the bones coming to life again. Speaking of Israel coming to life again. And so Paul here says, for if their rejection is reconciliation for the world, what will their exception be but life from the dead? So, so if because Israel rejected the Messiah, the world came to know Christ, and then ultimately where he's leading to is that ultimately Israel is going to come to salvation. They're, they're going to see Christ as a Messiah for who he is. And when that day comes, it'll be like somebody raised from the dead. And this will be great joy. He goes on to say, For if the piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them, of the rich root of the olive tree. So he starts with this picture of a lump of dough, which we're going to kind of fly over and get to the tree. He starts speaking of, of, of a, a, a cultivated tree with a wild shoot. See, the first thing we have to catch is in verse 17. If you write in your Bible, circle the word some. It's very easy for us to think that when God chopped down this olive tree, that he basically removed all of the tree, that he basically put a tractor up, basically pulled the roots out of the ground. Like if you drive down coal grade, there used to be right to the left here, um, a big orange field. And at last year sometime, they first they chopped down all those trees. Then they took a tractor and they basically just pulled all of the roots up. And they do that because they know that a new tree will sprout from the trunk. And so now I believe that there's like these pile of, of the root systems getting ready to be burned, or maybe they burned them already. And so a lot of people think with Israel, 
that in the church that what's happened is that God's like uprooted the whole tree and planted this new tree that he's replaced Israel with the church. But look what it says. But if some of the branches were broken off, he doesn't say that all of the branches were broken off. He says some of the branches were broken off. And you being a wild olive. See, I read that. I go, oh, you being a wild child. That was me. You know, I don't know. We're grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. The first thing that none of us will probably understand is, well, maybe in Valley Center we will, the, the art of grafting. A, a lot of us that have avocados, I don't have avocados, but most people that have avocados in Valley Center have like grafted multiple uh, types of avocado into one avocado tree so that the avocado tree will produce avocados year round. They can do it with orange trees. They can do it with all sorts of trees. But what would happen in Israel during this time is you would have olive trees. There'd be wild olive trees. The wild olive trees were stronger that their, their root base could survive. They could handle the weather and the various types. So, so what they would do is chop the tree off They would take the wild tree because of its uh, ability to survive and they would take cultivated olive branches and they would graft them into this tree so that the cultivated branches would get their strength and sustenance from the root of the wild tree because it was so much stronger and its ability to sustain the wild uh, or the, the cultivated cutting so much better. But now when he starts talking about the church and Israel, he flip-flops it, and he says that the tree is the cultivated, the, the root is the cultivated tree, being Israel, founded from Abraham. And that the Gentiles are the, the wild uh, branches being grafted in. And his point that he's going to make is, for those of us who are Gentiles within the church, we, we need to understand that our roots our promises, everything that we have in the New Testament is totally and completely founded in the Old Testament through the promises of Abraham. We've taken this book and we've taken out the New Testament and we cling to this. You'll gain so much by understanding the Old Testament and, and seeing the Old Testament in the New, in the New Testament. He says you, we need to stay humble and thankful. He goes on to say, verse 18, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. So we've been grafted into Israel, this this root. And if you drive around town, you might notice uh, it's like a, and what is it, like a little fish that goes into roots or whatever. And it says Romans 10, 14, grafted in. And it's just this picture that we as the church have been grafted in to Israel. This isn't something that should bring arrogance to us. It should bring great gratitude. In verse 19, he, he begins to start an argument that he anticipates from the Gentile church. He said, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Oh, look at all these branches. They were chopped off so that I could be planted. I must be special. We as the Gentiles, we must be better than them because he chopped some of them off so that we could be placed in there. And he says, that's a wrong thinking. Listen why they were why they were cut off. Verse 20, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by faith. It's always been by faith. The reason those branches were cut off is because they didn't believe. There were branches that remained that walked according to faith. 
He says, don't be conceited, but fear. For God did not spare the natural branches. He will not spare you either. And this is where we need a, this isn't talking to individuals. This is talking to the collective church. There are some that would interpret this as saying that you, Christian, could lose your salvation. It says right here that you can be cut off. But the problem that I have with that is if we turn a few pages back to the Christian when he's speaking in Romans 8.38, who says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we were to go to Ephesians 1.13, we'll see that upon belief that we're sealed with the spirit and the sealing was something that was irrevocable, that when a king sealed something, he couldn't undo it. But when we look at this passage, this, this cutting away and we look collectively, Israel strayed from the truth of what God had said to them, that you'd walk with me by faith, that you'd trust me. And those branches were cut off. Not all of Israel, those that walk by faith remained. It says, you, the Gentile church, there's nothing special about you, and you can be chopped off too. Part of this, when I look at this, and I start, when we start talking history about the church, there are many people who say, oh, the church, it's evil in the history. And there's great, horrible things that happened under the name of Christ in the last 2,000 years, over and over and over again. And when the whole or the majority in the church isn't walking with God, God certainly can chop it off. There's nothing special about us. What he wants from us is to walk by faith, and it's easy to get off track. I've been here for a little over six years. When I first came to Valley Baptist Church, there were like eight people. I don't know what happened to the church that brought it to where it was almost dying. But it's easy for me to remember what this church was. And every church needs to stay focused on the main things and the main thing is that christ is lord there's all sorts of side issues but the main issue is that we're sinners that we need christ for salvation and we learn about him through studying his word and so if a church gets off track there's a warning here and i take this as a great warning we need to keep the main things the main things we need to stay dependent on god we need to walk by faith We need to trust him. When he says he did not spare the natural branches, what is he? He wants us to walk with him. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. And I don't think the main issue is alcohol. The issue is control. When when you're drunk, you don't have control. I've got all kinds of stories about that. But I don't feel like embarrassing myself today. I'm not filling up to it right now. But he says, but be filled by the spirit. And as you humble yourself and you walk with God and he fills you, he empowers you to live out the life that he wants you to live. And from that passage, Paul in Ephesians chapter five and six lays out all of these relationships that if you're controlled by the spirit, if you're filled with the spirit, it'll work itself out in your life, in your work relationships, in your marriage, with your parents, with your children. All of these aspects, the spirit will produce fruit. And so he wants us to walk by faith. Verse 22 says, Behold the kindness and the severity of God, 
to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Don't miss this. This is beautiful. He says, walk with him. Don't forget about the kindness of God. Paul says in Romans 2, 4, don't forget that it was the kindness of God that led you to repentance, that you came into this relationship with him. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We, we need to keep a healthy dose of who we're dealing with. Yes, he's love, but he wants us to walk with him in his kindness. But notice what it says here in verse 23 about Israel. They've already been, this, this, the portion that's been cut off. He says, well, they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. There's still hope for them that they've been cut off of the tree. Suddenly they say, well, you know what? I believe I want to walk by faith. Paul says, you know what? God can just graft them right back in. It's a beautiful picture of how loving and patient and kind that God is towards us. I'm so glad that God gave me more than one chance. I'm so glad that God gave me more than like probably a hundred chances to walk with him. And he's still giving me chances. Because he ultimately, his, his goal is that people would be grafted in, that we would come into relationship with him. Verse 24, for if you were cut off, what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own tree? I've never done any sort of a transplant surgery. It'd be kind of fun, but I definitely would want somebody to walk me through it the first time. I don't think it'll ever happen. But one thing I know about transplant surgery is it's like really particular, the match. So if you have like an organ that needs to be replaced, they often search within your own family, your same blood type, all of the, the factors. Because if you get an organ that it doesn't match you, your body will reject it. And so you need something that's a close match in order for it to be accepted. And so in this verse, Paul basically says to the Gentiles who've been grafted in, he's taken something that doesn't have a match and he was able to graft it in successfully. How much easier would it be to graft in something that has a match, a fit, meaning Israel who has rejected God, that he'll be able to graft them in and that they those that have been grafted in from Judaism, it's like they have a head start. They have an understanding that we don't have as Gentiles. He goes on to say, for I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And with that, he pretty much says, you know what? When God speaks, his word will be fulfilled. Irrevocable. And so we look at the situation, not, not so much us, uh, but to the, the Jews who responded positively to the Messiah in contrast to the Jews who rejected the great tension that existed and the discouragement. He said, you know, God's not done. Right now, those Jews that are rejecting, they, they seem as though 
enemies of the gospel. That's a pretty harsh word. But he goes on to say, you know what? This is happening for a season. It says it's a mystery. It's been revealed. I'm not going to begin to pretend like I understand this in its totality. But the mystery that he explains in verse 25 is saying, you know what? This hardness came because the Gentiles, it was all in God's plan that they'd come to faith. And it says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's all sort of speculation over what this means. Some have said that one day the last Gentile will come and respond to the gospel, that they'll believe that they'll be saved. Some say at that point, oh, the rapture will probably happen, or I don't know. But at one point, the last Gentile will come to faith and the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. And at that point, it, it talks about that there'll be this large group of Israel's, Isra- Israelites that will come to salvation. Uh, Jesus said when he departed, uh, he'll return in the same way. Maybe when he returns in the same way, if he comes back like he came, like he says he will, into Jerusalem, I have a feeling a lot of Jews will suddenly go, oh, that's, he, he is the Messiah. I believe. And this, I don't know how it's going to look, but Paul says, Trust God's word. It will happen. And so with that, we'll close in prayer. I don't, I'm, I'm hot up here. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we, um, we thank you for the great promises that are found in scripture. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand a small sliver of what was covered today. Lord, first and foremost, we see that you are a loving God who desires us to be reconciled with you. And so, Father, I pray for those in this room who are still on the journey of um, trying to figure out what you want from them or relationship with them. Lord, I pray that you would help them to, to see Jesus for who he is, that they would come to faith in him, that they would be reconciled to you. And, Father, for those of us who have been grafted in, Lord, we thank you for... Uh, this grafting, this, that we've been included, um, that we have this great relationship with the Messiah. Father, I pray that you would increase our love for the word. Lord, may we see um, all that you've done throughout history. Lord, that our faith would be increased. Father, we do pray for um, Israel, Lord, those descendants that are scattered around the world and the nation that's surrounded presently by a whole world that is against them. Lord, we pray ultimately, Lord, that you would help them to come to discover that Christ is the Messiah that he is. Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to keep them in our hearts, Lord, to recognize, Lord, um, that you have a plan for them. And Lord, we long to see this plan unfold in your timing. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.